would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We'll be looking together this evening at verses 16 through the end of the chapter, 16 through 47. Before reading God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on our time together. Our Father, we thank You for this word of truth, that in Your goodness and kindness You have given us opportunity to study together tonight. We pray for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. May we never tire of hearing of the good news of the gospel, no matter how many times we gather here in this place throughout this earthly life, no matter how familiar a passage might be to our ears, may we always delight in it, revel in it, uh, marvel at the wondrous work of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. John 5, beginning in verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise." For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true." There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, earlier in this chapter, earlier in chapter 5, you might recall that Jesus had healed this invalid by the pool called Bethesda. It was this amazing display of power, authority, and compassion on the part of Jesus. Here is this man who, for 38 years, had been in this debilitating condition. And it was at the words of Jesus that he is immediately restored to full health. And in the power of Jesus' words to restore this man to life, we have a picture of what the Lord himself has done in the creation order, speaking and bringing life. Jesus simply speaks, and the man is healed. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, it just so happens that this miracle occurs on the Sabbath day. So when the man was seen walking with his mat, he was questioned by the religious leaders. The man had been burdened for 38 years with a severe physical condition. The carrying of his mat was actually evidence that he had been freed from that burden. But in the eyes of those arrogant men in authority, he was violating the Sabbath by carrying his mat, by carrying a burden. So when the Jews find out that it was Jesus who healed the man and Jesus who told the man to take his mat and walk on the Sabbath day, John tells us here in verse 16 that they began persecuting him. But Jesus is not simply a passing annoyance as they had hoped. Instead, his bold activity is becoming more blatant. While the number of followers gathering around Jesus continues to increase threatening to undermine their authority. And so what started as a bit of frustration at the hand of a Jewish rabbi has escalated now into great hatred. Then we read in verse 18, they were seeking to kill him, not only because they perceived him as breaking the Sabbath, which he wasn't, but it was their perception of such, but because he claims equality with God, which of course he does because he and the Father are one. Now, try to put yourself in the ancient Near Eastern world with the authority structure that was established in Jewish society at this time. If there's a rogue teacher that's going around out there saying and doing questionable things in your own community, sort of gathering the lay people around him, he might have a lot of self-confidence. He might have a lot of boldness out there among the common man. But if he were brought before a council of learned men who were educated and who were influential, who were in positions of authority, you would expect that that rogue teacher in that particular context would back down, would sort of crumple under the intimidating atmosphere. That's what the religious leaders were hoping for. 
And that's what they thought. But instead of Jesus backing down, he replies with the most amazing revelation of his identity, with his self-disclosure. So what we read in verse 19 all the way through the end of chapter 5 is Jesus' reply to these accusers who question his very identity. You see, Jesus never backs down from those who might seek to judge him because he is the judge of the world. Even in the midst of murderous hatred, he is bold. He has confidence, proclaiming the truth and bringing conviction of sin to those who are willing to listen, bringing hope of forgiveness to those who would humble themselves before him. Throughout Jesus' entire earthly ministry, he has such trust in the will of his heavenly Father that he knows nothing can happen to him until his hour of suffering arrives. And this trust that he displays in his heavenly Father ought to create great hope and confidence on our part as we learn to rest in his substitutionary work for us. Because where we waver, our Lord never falters. Where we lack boldness, Jesus never backs down. Where we wonder how to reply to those who might attack our Savior, he displays his authority and wisdom. Now, certainly, Jesus is an example for his people to follow, but never lose sight of the fact that everything he does in his earthly ministry is intentional, substitutionary work for his chosen people as he seeks to honor the will of his Father in heaven. He says numerous times throughout John's gospel, I must do the will of my Father. I can do nothing other than the will of my Father. I only seek to do the will of him who sent me. This is the driving, we could say, the passionate force behind the Savior's life. And so he has proven who he is by this amazing, miraculous sign of healing the lame man. And now he uses the outrage of the religious leaders as an opportunity to instruct as an opportunity to proclaim clearly that he is the eternal Son of God, the Savior in whom we must trust for forgiveness of sins and for life eternal. So what sort of claims does Jesus make about himself in verses 19 through 29? That's our first point this evening is simply the claims of Jesus. What claims does he make about himself? Well, notice that he starts his discourse in verse 19 by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. It's a phrase that John is um, liberal in recording the words of Jesus in this regard. Some 25 times throughout John's gospel, we read this phrase, truly, truly, or as the old King James reads, verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, of course, we know that all of the words of Jesus are true. In chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the truth. Everything that he says is truth. He cannot speak anything unless it embodies truth itself. But when we see this double emphasis, truly, truly, this is a way to really perk up your ears in a sense, to put it in bold font, a way to remind the reader that Jesus, as the ultimate prophet, speaks only that which is true. And so as one who only speaks truth, what is the first truth claim that Jesus makes? Well, in verse 19 and 20, that he and the Father are perfectly united in works. 
Look there again, verse 19, the latter half of that verse. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. You see, the religious leaders are furious that Jesus would heal upon the Sabbath day. And his response is, I don't do anything that is not in line with the activity of my Father. I do nothing that I do not see him do first. This work of healing that I just performed on the Sabbath is an act of kindness and mercy, something that is completely in line with the character and nature of the Father in heaven. Now, how would Jesus know what the Father does? How would he have this background, firsthand observational knowledge of what the Father would do unless he has been with the Father prior to his own birth? Unless he has been with the Father, as we know, of course, from all eternity. And so Jesus claims here not simply that his works are in line with the works of his heavenly Father, but if he were able to observe his heavenly Father, something that would be unobservable by someone who is a mere man, then Jesus is claiming eternal deity. They want to kill him because he is claiming equality with God. And Jesus' response is, of course I'm equal with him. I have watched his works from that heavenly throne room from all eternity, and now I have come in the flesh to emulate him in every way. And the only way that his works can be perfectly in line with the Father's works is if he and the Father are of one mind, perfectly united in thought, in motive, desire and activity. So when you look at the Lord Jesus, what do you see? We ought to see not only the eternal Son, but also the loving Heavenly Father, full of compassion and grace, full of infinite and eternal love toward lost sinners. The works that you see Him do on the pages of Scripture as He brings healing and restoration are the works that point to His glorious nature. Later in chapter 14, you might recall that Jesus says, essentially, I and the Father are one. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus says, Philip, are you still so dull? Do you not know that the one who sees me has seen the Father? And notice that Jesus says in verse 20 that the purpose of observing these works is that you might marvel. And if you truly are seeing the works of the Father displayed in the works of the Son, then how can your response be anything other than wonder, awe, marveling at his power and at his love to save lost sinners who had nothing but indifference, in fact, hatred toward him? Well, second, Jesus claims in verse 21 to be the giver of life. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, those who were there listening to Jesus as religious leaders who were all good Jewish scholars, they all know that God alone is the giver of life. They know that he alone is the one who has the power of life within his hands. Deuteronomy 32 verse 39 reads, See now that I... Even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. 
I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Jesus, of course, has just given an example of his power to restore life as he had healed the invalid earlier in this chapter. And he'll give an even greater picture of this in chapter 11 with the resurrection of Lazarus. And so when Jesus says he is the giver of life, I think he is referring to his power, his authority, his ability to bring new life into the inner man, to create life within to take hard hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh that are pliable in his hands. But he also has in mind resurrection life at the end of the age. We read that in verses 25 and 26, in which Jesus speaks clearly of this great day, in which he will call forth from the tombs those who have died. We see a foreshadowing, a picture of this in that mysterious passage from Matthew 27, verse 52 where at the death of Christ, those who are dead come from the tombs, a foreshadowing, again, of what Christ will do at the end of the age. Now, death, of course, is the result of our rebellion against God. Death is the just wages that we deserve. And so for Jesus to restore life points to his sinless nature, points to his divine power. And not only is Jesus united In work with the Father, not only is he the giver of life, something that only God can give, but third, he claims to be the judge of all mankind. We see this in verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now again, those who are here, those of Jewish descent, they would know that God alone has the prerogative of judgment. In Genesis 18, 25, Abraham confesses, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, earlier in John chapter 3, we read that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But a time is coming in which the Son will return. He will save those who are in him, but he will judge mankind for their hardness of heart, for those who have rejected him and failed to bow before his authority. And when we talk about a God of judgment, you know that most people in the society in which we live do not want to acknowledge that there is a judgment, that God is a God who will judge. There was a German poet and journalist named Heinrich Henne who lived in the 19th century. He was lying upon his deathbed and was asked by a priest if he thought God would forgive him of his sins. And his reply was, of course, God will forgive me. That's his job. That's how many people think of God today, isn't it? I've messed up. We all have to some degree. But in the end, I've done the best that I can. And God knows that. And he'll understand. And he'll just forgive. He'll just overlook. That's his job. That's what he does. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, book that we've been studying in our senior high Sunday school class on Sunday mornings, using that as a guide as we've been talking about the nature of the Lord. In speaking about God's judgment, Packer says this, moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. Not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. You see, for the Lord, not to judge would be indifference towards righteousness. 
would be, in fact, hatred towards righteousness. Leon Morris says that the doctrine of final judgment stresses man's accountability and the certainty that justice will finally triumph over all the wrongs which are part and parcel of life here and now. This doctrine of judgment gives meaning to life. The Christian view of judgment means that history moves to a goal. Judgment protects the idea of the triumph of God and of good. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. And so all of this, this self-disclosure of his nature, you see, is in response, again, to their murderous hatred. They wanted Jesus removed. They themselves sat in positions of judgment over him. But nothing could be further from the truth. And there are those today who sit in positions of authority and act as though they are above the law, living as though they can accuse our great God of the things that he does in this world. But one day they will be humbled in the dust before him. All it will take is a single moment in which the Lord Jesus will return at the end of the age to display his glory and he will be shown to be the rightful judge over all. And so here's what we learn about the person of Jesus. He has the authority to reveal the will of the Father for he has been with him from all eternity. He has the power of life within himself for he is the perfect, eternal, sinless Son of God. And he has the right to judge all of mankind a prerogative given to him by virtue of his faithfulness to the covenant of redemption. Now, of course, these are spectacular claims that Jesus makes, aren't they? But isn't it true to a degree that anyone can say these things? Anyone can claim as much, and people have throughout history. So how does Jesus back up these claims? How does he substantiate these claims that his works are in one with the Father, that he is resurrection life, that he is the judge of all mankind? Well, that's our second main point, and we see it in the latter half of the discourse, the proof behind Jesus' claims. Jesus, in verse 30, says, I can do nothing on my own because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus backs up his claims not by seeking his own glory, but by seeking the glory of the Father. You see, the accusation that's been leveled against Jesus is that he's just some sort of self-glory hog, living contrary to the law of God, violating the Sabbath. They're basically accusing him of being concerned only with his own glory. He's making himself equal with God. He's going out and performing miracles. He doesn't even invoke God's presence or, or assistance, rather. But Jesus is pointing out that he is in the world not for his own glory, but to reveal the Father, to glorify the Father, to do the will of his Father. And because he and the Father are one, in order to reveal the Father, he must reveal himself. And so by revealing himself, he is in fact revealing the Father. And so Jesus here, by saying he can do nothing in his own, nothing on his own, he's not denying his deity. 
He just made it clear in that first paragraph that he is divine. But he is giving us a glimpse of the intra-Trinitarian work of redemption, that he is perfectly subservient to the will of his Father in heaven. And so here what we have is a glimpse of the infinite love between the persons of the triune Godhead. The Son longs for the Father to be glorified. The Father longs for the Son to be exalted. And later on in John's Gospel, in the Upper Room Discourse, when Jesus is teaching his disciples about the important and powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit, we read there that the Son longs to point to this transforming work of the Spirit. Well, when the Spirit comes, he works redemption within the hearts of God's people, creating worshipers of the Son and the Father. Such infinite love, you see, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The longing that Jesus has to give glory to his Father in heaven is evidence that he is not some lunatic seeking self-glory, but he longs to give glory to his Father. And Jesus also backs up these claims of divinity by offering proof in the form of witnesses. The Old Testament law required a witness bearer to authenticate the claims that someone might make. So, for example, if one comes and claims to be a prophet, the words that he says are tested as history unfolds. Do those words actually come to fruition? If they don't, then he is invalidated and cast off as one who is a prophet. He is a false prophet. Now, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, he does not need such witness bearers in order to affirm his identity. But if Jesus comes as a substitution for lost sinners, then he comes submitting to every portion of God's law. And so he complies to this regulation of the word of the Lord by pointing out that there are several witnesses authenticating his claims. First, there was John the Baptist who bore witness to Jesus. Read of this back in chapter 1 and also in chapter 3, verses 28 and 30. It's there that John says, as a prophet of God, that he longs to point to Christ. John himself says, he, the Lord Jesus, must increase while I must decrease. And not only is there the witness of John, but there's also the witness of the miraculous signs that Jesus performs. In verse 36, Jesus calls them works that have been given to him by the Father. An example, of course, is the healing of the layman at the pool. Further witness, we read in verse 37, it's the Father himself who bears witness to Christ. Verse 37 reads, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Now, that might seem like a strange phrase. The Father bears witness, but you cannot see him and you have not heard him. How can he bear witness than if you can't see and hear him? I think simply what Jesus is saying is that you have failed to be attentive to the very word that the Father has given through the prophets of old. If you had been attentive to those things, then you would have recognized that I am the fulfillment of those things. You have failed to see him. You have failed to hear him because you have not recognized me. Your failure to acknowledge me is an indictment of your failure to submit to the truth of God's word. 
And further, there's the witness of Scripture, as he says in verse 39. There's the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures that points to the Lord Jesus. The way that our confession of faith puts it, it says promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types of ordinances, all for signified Christ to come. All of these things in the Old Testament pointed, foreshadowing the Savior who was to come. If there's belief in God's word, if there is submission to his authority, then there would be faith and there would be rest in Christ Jesus. And finally, Jesus says another witness is the testimony of Moses. You see that in verses 45 through 47. The Moses, whom they hold in high esteem, will be their accuser because of their failure to listen to Jesus. And you see, what all of these witnesses have in common is that the Jewish, the Jewish people affirmed them as authoritative. So if they agreed that John was a prophet, if they affirmed that only God can accomplish such miraculous signs, if they confess that the Scriptures are the Word of God and that Moses bears witness to the Lord God, then why would they reject Jesus? It would stand to reason that if they accepted those witnesses, then they would be attentive to the one whom they are bearing witness toward. You could picture something like this. Imagine a courtroom scene in which an attorney presents multiple expert witnesses who one after the other support the fact that his client is trustworthy. The jury then deliberates, and they affirm the validity of all of those expert witnesses. Yes, we believe them all. Their argument is airtight. We just don't like that guy. We just don't want to believe that he is who he claims to be. Now, that would be more of a reflection of the foolishness of the jury It would have nothing to do with the authenticity and reliability of the expert witnesses. It would have nothing to do with the character of the one on trial. Instead, it's a reflection of their own stupidity of heart. Rejection of Jesus is not for lack of evidence, but for hardness of heart. Failure to listen to such witnesses, as Jesus says, brings judgment upon you. So what response should there have been to the words of Jesus on the part of those who heard him firsthand? What response should there be in our own life as we consider the words of Christ here from John chapter 5? Well, again, in verse 20, these words are spoken, these works of Jesus are evident that we may marvel, marvel at the works of the Son, marvel and wonder before our loving and gracious God. Our response ought to be one of humble gratitude. He has secured resurrection life for his people. The Spirit of Christ has renewed us, and that gift of eternal life is something that is a present possession. And that day of judgment that is coming when the Lord returns at the end of the age is not something for us to fear any longer because of the resurrection life that is ours. And our response should be one of worship. Worship involves gathering as we're doing on a Sunday morning and evening like this. But worship really involves all of life. 
living with a Christ-centered existence. Worship means seeking to honor the Father, to honor the Son in all that we think, in all that we say, in all that we do. Listen to Him. Believe in His words. Put your faith in Him. Rest upon Him, not for your salvation only, but rest upon Him every day as you go through the weariness of life. Long for His words to soften your heart. It's possible to know a great deal about the Bible. We see that here from these religious leaders. They know a great deal about the content of God's Word, but they do not know the God behind His Word. Really, what John is pressing for throughout this entire gospel narrative is this, that your reaction to Jesus determines your eternal destiny. Those who rejected Jesus remained under judgment because the Word of God does not indwell them. They do not love God, but instead long for the praise of men. And so may we also look to the truth of God's word, consider how it reflects our own hearts, shows us the state of our own hearts. May we consider the calling before us to grow in our love toward this great God of our redemption. Will you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you for the eternal truth of your word, and we pray that you would write it upon our hearts that we would be people who long to grow in our love for our faithful Savior, to see him as our substitute, to grow in our understanding of truth, certainly, but that the understanding of truth that we grow in would lead to greater love and adoration toward you. In the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. We conclude our time by singing together hymn number 345.